Hi, Avis. Greetings, everybody. Um, well, I have on my shelf, amongst uh, my titles of Heschel, a old videotape um, that the Jewish Theological Seminary reprinted in ni from 1993. From 1973, a few weeks before he died, he was, Heschel was interviewed by Carl Stern, and the show was called The Guiding Light? No, I forget. Anyway, it was a show about... Um, uh, it says in here. Anyway, and um, I have it on tape, and I was watching him, and I thought, it's about a half hour. We should watch it first, since we've been hearing all his words. Let's hear him. Uh, so... Um, uh, this TV works great, even though it's as old as the videotape. And so uh, you all should probably just swivel around. I can give you a hand TV if you want. Okay. I'll turn off the light. I was really enjoying just getting a taste of this before, and I thought, I really want to share it with you. And then we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards, and then I have a handout after that. Okay, so just to set the stage, this is 1973. Heschel's 65 years old. He's already been suffering from heart problems. He looks pretty haggard, actually, but very animated nonetheless. And um, uh, he died just a few weeks later. So it's good to have this record play. There you go. I brought these books from home and only was. What happened? Sorry. I think you probably changed the channel on the TV. I changed the channel by mistake? Yeah, not, it's not on the layer. Experiences of life have found their way into these books. 
I would say again, my background, my early upbringing. I would criticize my early upbringing as uh, deficient in one respect and very rich in another respect. Deficient in what is maybe called the art of relaxation, sports. I'm not a sporting type, unfortunately. <laughs> but very rich in moments of exaltation. This enabled me to stand a little bit above the circumstances of life and to take a perspective from which I could see the world, so to speak, from a higher point of view. In other words, uh, I was trained as a child to live a life, or to strive to live a life which is compatible with the mystery and model of human existence. And, and, and learning about it. What is, the learning role, about what is the role of learning? The role of learning was decisive. First of all, the supreme value was tied to learning, and learning being a source of inspiration, learning being the greatest adventure, learning being a source of joy, and in fact, learning for the purpose of discovery, of the importance of self-discipline, the realization, namely, that a life without discipline was not worth living. Perhaps uh, a life without surprise is not worth living either. You recently told an interview, an, in an interviewer, that uh, what keeps me alive is my ability to be surprised. What, uh, what has surprised you lately? This may be my weakness. You know, you quoted once a statement from the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And I disagree with it. I would say there's nothing stale under the sun, except human beings who become stale. I try not to be stale, and everything is new. No two moments are alike, and a person who thinks that two moments are alike has never lived. The secret of it is a very profound principle in philosophy, and that I would call the sense for the unique. Do you know that among a billion faces in this world, no two faces are alike? The other day a person complained to me, he went to the Metropolitan Art Museum, and he was bewildered because no two paintings look alike. One of the most arresting titles of your many books would be this one, God in Search of Man. Is God in Search of Man? That's a paradox. In fact, if God would consult me, I would tell him, but does so he? He doesn't. He <laughs> consult me. I would say, why do you care about man? The biggest message of the Bible, of the prophets of Israel, is that God takes men seriously. You remember he created Adam and Eve, and they immediately failed. He was disappointed, but he kept them alive. Then they gave birth to two boys, very nice boys, I'm sure they got some very excellent education in private school. <laughs> Certainly, in a good environment, they didn't live in the slums, you know? And you know what one brother did to the other? God should have been disgusted. He said, no, I will keep the human species alive. I'm waiting. Maybe someday there will be a righteous generation. Yeah. And throughout history, see, by the Bible, there's one disappointment for God after another. And he's still waiting, waiting, waiting for mankind which will live by justice and compassion. He's in search of men. Now, let me say to you there are essentially three points. One, God in search of men to me is a summary of all of the Hebrew Bible. It expresses the idea of Judaism about the position of men in the universe. Men is terribly important. 
If God is so concerned about men, which surprises me again, why shouldn't God be concerned more about the, uh, let us say, uh, cosmic energy or the astronaut's uh, techniques? He's interested about widows and orphans in Jerusalem. My Lord, if they were to ask me, I would say, beneath your dignity, you, God of the universe, should be concerned about the poor, about the disadvantaged? Yes, he is. Money is very important to God. And the third point? The third point would be the nature of religion. The nature of religion is not just a long-ranging feeling of man searching for God. I think that God is more in search of men than man is in search of God. He doesn't, it gives us no rest. We have for generations, for decades, for centuries, tried to refute the existence of God, as if it didn't exist. And in spite of everything, man is still searching. Man is still waiting. Man is still longing. Man has discovered, and he discovered, that a man, man without God is like a torso, a body without a head. In this but man is searching also because, if you'll forgive me, a certain, there's a certain absurdity, a certain purposelessness, or perhaps undiscoverable purpose. Let me cite an example. Ten days before Martin Luther King was killed, you, as a good friend of his, uh, addressed a, a convention of the rabbinical assembly, and you said, Martin Luther King is a sign that God has not forsaken the United States of America. And that, ten days later, uh, he, he was dead in the most cruel and uh, purposeful purposeless uh, fashion. That's, it's that sort of question that, that challenges faith. How do you explain that? If we understand the Bible properly, and very few people these days study the Bible properly, we atomize the Bible, we tear it to pieces, instead of immersing in the thoughts of the Bible, you discover that God shares life with man, and he has given man freedom, a very questionable gift and the most outstanding gift man has. Men can do anything. When the, the first son of the first couple decided to murder his brother, he did what he pleased, and God did not interfere. That, that raises uh, the question, though. If, if you're saying that if, if, if God were to control every aspect of man's life, it would not be living, then that raises the question, why pray to God then? If God is not going to interfere, if God is not going to intervene, if God is not going to help, what, what is the role of prayer? First of all, let us not misunderstand the nature of prayer, particularly in Jewish tradition. The primary purpose of prayer is not to, to make requests. The primary purpose of prayer is to praise, to sing, to chant. Because the essence of prayer is a song, and men cannot live without a song. Prayer may not save us, but prayer may make us worthy of being saved. Prayer is not requesting. There is a partnership of God and man. God needs our help. I would define man as a divine need. God is the need of man. In history, he cannot do the job alone because he gave us freedom. And the whole hope of, mess of messianic redemption depends on God and on man. We must help him. And by each deed we carry out, we either retard or accelerate the coming of redemption. We, our role in history is tremendous. I mean our human role. Absurdity, yes, plays a major role. In fact, it's the greatest challenge to existence, not only to religion, the greatest challenge to all activities. 
to political activity, to economic activity, to all idea of progress, is the encounter with absurdity. And if I were to be asked, what is the meaning of God? A difficult question to answer in one sentence. Well, I'll ask you, what is the meaning of God? <laughs> I would have to use a number of sentences. One, the certainty that there is a meaning beyond a mystery, that holiness conquers absurdity. And without holiness, we will sink in absurdity. Where is holiness? Is it what's in, in the Bible? Is that where one finds holiness? I don't believe in monopoly. I think God loves all men and has given many nations, has given all men an awareness of his greatness and of his love. And God is to be found in many hearts all over the world, not limited to one nation or to one people, to one religion. But I have to understand again to come back to the problem of uniqueness. What has the Hebrew Bible given us in particular that not to be found anywhere else? I would say that particular appreciation of the greatness of man, of man's tremendous potentiality as a partner of God. This idea, to me, is not to be found anywhere else. But is that potential of being fulfilled? We, we talked a moment ago about Martin Luther King. You've been active in the civil rights movement since, I guess, the early 60s. You marched at, at Selma with Dr. King. I think it's fair to say, though, that uh, you've written about the monstrosity of inequality. I think that's the expression you use. I think it's fair to say that in the past few years that the American uh, community has uh, hardened its attitude uh, toward uh, equality in jobs, housing, schools, and so on. What, how is that carrying out a potential? You know, uh, do I have to tell you that life is a drama? Do I have to tell you that we are not in the midst of an automatic progressive development of humanity? There are ups and downs. At this very moment, there is a doubt, there is a depression, there is a renewal of prejudice, which is a poison. As a person committed to biblical faith, I would say what keeps humanity alive is the certainty that we have a father. But then I suppose I have to remember that God is either the father of all men or of no men. And uh, the idea of judging a person in terms of uh, black or brown or white is an eye disease. <laughs> you also said that you're an optimist against your better judgment. Yeah. But you're still an optimist. I'm still an optimist. You uh, first gained prominence as a scholar writing about the prophets. Is it possible for a, uh, a, a modern prophet to, to come to us? Or is that just pre-biblical? Again, uh, Mr. Stern, your questions are very rich, and very complex, and very meaningful. And since time is so limited and precious, I would have to give you short answers and only partial answers. The idea of a prophet is complex and consists about all of two things: or the message of the prophet, or what the prophet has to say, and some extraordinary claim to an experience which is un not given to other men. Let us ignore the second, let us take the first. What's so great about the message of the prophet? But the prophet is a character. I would say the prophet is a man who is able to hold God and man in one thought, in one time, at all times. This is so great and this is so marvelous. Which means that whatever I do to man, I do to God. And I hurt a human being, 
like injure God. No. Their thought, their message continues to be so relevant today that I venture to say it. I had this experience with many distinguished philosophers when we got together to discuss social contemporary problems that the ultimate source of hope for all of us, whether it was a Protestant or a Catholic or a secular philosopher, was suddenly our reliance on the hope uttered by the prophets of Israel. Therefore, let's say, the spirit of the prophet, the message of the prophet is very much alive. The kind of men who combined very deep love and very powerful descent, painful rebuke with unwavering hope. The prophet, as a witness to the great mystery, or to what I would call meaning beyond the mystery, namely God, could still be alive and should serve as an example. You're talking, uh, you're talking about a rebirth of that of their knowledge in the mouths of others, or is that not to be? No, I mean an identification. Let me make a personal statement here. I've written a book on the prophets. I had a large book. Spent many years. And then really this book changed my life. Because earlier in my life, my great love was learning, study. And the place where I preferred to live was my study in books and writing and thinking. I learned from the prophets they have to be involved in the affairs of men, in the affairs of suffering men. And I would like to say that one of the saddest things about contemporary life in America is that the prophets are unknown. There's a complete decline of the Bible in American education. No one knows the prophets. There are countless intellectuals who may be great authorities on literature. I've never read the prophets really, never been touched by them. And this, I'm sorry to say, is a little bit of a disaster. The great examples we need today are the ancient prophets of Israel. I see that this book on the prophets which I wrote changed my life. And I think that anybody who reads the prophets will discover, number one, that the prophets were the most disturbing people who have ever lived. Yeah? It's not easy to read. You mean in, they were abrasive when you say disturbing? Abrasive, disturbing, uh, giving me a bad conscience. Well, you are you, are you a prophet? You've been uh, abrasive at times, particularly uh, concerning the Vietnam War. You've said a great deal about that. I wouldn't uh, accept this uh, praise because <laughs> it's enough for me to say that I am a descendant of the prophets, which is an old true statement. It is uh, a <clears throat> claim uh, almost arrogant enough to say that I am a descendant of the prophets, what is called the name of the year. So let us hope and pray that I am worthy of being a descendant of the you said during the height of the agitation over the Vietnam War that it, it was one of the it was the great religious issue. What made the Vietnam War a religious issue? Of course, it's a religious issue. What does God demand of us primarily? Justice and compassion. What does He condemn above all? Murder, killing innocent people. How can I pray? And I have in my conscience the awareness that I am co-responsible for the death of innocent people in Vietnam. In a free society, 
some are guilty, all are responsible. At this time, one year ago, I was covering a trial of priests and nuns, the Berrigan trial in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Prospective jurors, one after another, when being questioned by the judge and lawyers, said uh, they thought it was wrong for clergymen to be involved in politics, and their job is to administer the spiritual needs. Well, why don't you stick to spiritual needs? That's a very good statement. In fact, it's such a good statement that if the prophets were alive, they would be already sent to jail by these Jews. Because the prophets mixed into social political issues. And frankly, I would say that God seems to be an unreligious person. Because if you read the words of God in the Bible, he always mixes in politics and in social issues. <laughs> That is the, the wonder of it, the, the torment that man has, the problem-solving machine that he is. That, you think, is, I detect, is the essence of being, of living a human life. Yes, you see, that is true. Now, but you see, one of the great sins of contemporary education is to give the impression you can solve all problems, or there are no problems. Actually, the greatness of man is that he faces problems. I would judge a person by how many deep problems he's concerned with. Isn't, isn't, is not the quest of religion, though, to give one a sense of, of inner peace? But you have to understand the meaning of inner peace. Let me give you first an example of a person who has no problems. Let me give you a dramatic, fictitious picture. Here stands a man, and I'll tell you, this is a man who has no problems. Do you know why? He's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and the more complicated, the more... The richer he is, the deeper are his problems. This is our distinction. There are problems to face problems. Life is a challenge, not just a satisfaction. And the calamity of our time is to reduce life to pleasure only. I'm not against pleasure. But the greatness of life is experience and facing a challenge rather than just having satisfaction. I would be frightened. If I were to be ruled by a person who is satisfied, so has the answers to everything. In a very deep sense, religion has two things. First of all, it's an answer to the ultimate problems of human existence. And it also has another side. It is a challenge to all answers. It is living in this polarity of these two points. But there are so many religions that say, come to us and, we, and you will have no problem. We, we will solve your problems. Here, here's the word of, of God. He, he will solve your problem. You don't, uh, you don't accept that. No, I don't accept it because it contradicts everything I have learned about life from experience, from philosophy, from history, from the Bible. If I look at the Bible, God is full of problems. Imagine, he created man. He created man on his own will, right? out of his own freedom. And man is a problem to him. Look at the Bible. <laughs> God has any problems man. Even God has problems. This is the deep ingredient of existence, problems. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy of our education today is we are giving such easy solutions. Be complacent, have peace of mind, everything is fine. No, mm -hmm. wrestling is the issue, facing the challenge is the issue. Would it be a better world if we were all in one religion? No. Would it be less strife? No. As far as I can judge, I try to judge God's will 
from history, it seems to be the will of God that there would be more than one religion. I think it's a very marvelous thing to realize. You know, if I were to ask the question, whether the example I think I gave you before, whether the Metropolitan Museum should try to introduce that all paintings should look alike, <laughs> or I should like to suggest that all human faces should look alike, what, how would you respond to my proposal? Hmm? I would be against it. I'm glad to be against it. I think also in your writings you've indicated that uh, even where one religion has been adopted in the, in the state, there's no evidence that that has brought any happiness or any uh, new high points of religious uh, feeling. Isn't that correct? Yes, I think uh, it is the will of God that there should be religious pluralism. One of the most important things in life a human being faces is not only to know how to build a machine, but also how to overcome envy. It's an irrational, destructive power in every man. What does the school do about the secular school? Nothing. So I'm disappointed. American educational system, on all levels, has proved to be a terrible disappointment. Religious schools, it's a new problem. I only wish I could tell you the religious schools are doing a perfect job. I would say religious schools should deserve support because they are doing partly a good job, at least teach people some of the great classical ideas of the religious tradition, and we cannot live without religious tradition, because take away the religious tradition, what is left, you know what is left, read contemporary literature, and give the contemporary literature, the novels, as a source of inspiration for our young people, what will they get? The Psalms, no one reads. You're not allowed to read the Psalms in the school. How can you, how can you be human without being able, without being able to pray? We need religious education. The problem begins whether religious education is in such a splendid state. It isn't, but a separate problem. I think that uh, aid to religious schools in some form that would not contradict the constitutional regulations would in the long run prove a blessing. The reason I fear supporting religious schools was because religion was a tremendous power at that time, a power we were afraid of, that would compete with the state, with the idea of equality. By now, religions are so weak in America, there's little to be afraid of religious power. 1973. Therefore, I would definitely say aid for religious schools in some form would be a great contribution. You believe that organized religion is in a weakened condition? I think so, but we have to put the blame not only on the religious people, on the religious establishment, but also on the people who belong to that establishment, on the members, on the plain people. You see, actually, the role of religion has declined as a result of countless assaults from all directions. So what is the outcome? In the past, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a parent who had a gifted boy had a great dream. His son should be a rabbi, minister, priest. Today, a man with a gifted boy like him to be a doctor of medicine, a banker, a lawyer. So the gifted boys are being kept away by many people, blame the people. But 
the religious leaders are to blame, there's a decline in religious thinking, in religious passion, and detachment from the real problems. Let me say to you the following. The central problem in the Bible is not God of men. The Bible is a book about men, rather than men's book about God. And the great problem is how to answer, to respond to the human situation. And somehow, religion, religious leaders have often become petrified in their own conditions and understanding, and couldn't relate to the burning issues of the day. How is it responding today? How is it responding today? Uh, not too well. A great many religious leaders have given up faith altogether. They are deluding themselves. And I told you before, self-deception is a major passion in human life. There are great many people who use the word God and don't believe in Him. Let me give you an example. One of the most popular definition of God coming in America today was developed by a great Protestant theologian. God is the ground of being. So everybody's ready to accept it. Why not? Ground of being causes me no harm. Let there be a ground of being. Don't call me any harm. I'm ready to accept it. It's meaningless. Isn't there a God who is above the ground? Maybe God is the source of qualms and of disturbing my conscience. Maybe God is a God of demand. Yet this is God, not the ground of being. Oh. Well, the result is, we have uh, religious institutions without a religious belief. We have a wave of non-belief. I have suddenly discovered that William James was not right when he spoke about, he was right, by the way. I'm saying it uh, rhetorically. There is a will to believe, but there is today a will to disbelieve. And that will is very powerful. To this very day, our young people are craving for some deeper meaning. Our young people are craving for a religious outlook, and what they get is stone and not bread. Well, what you've said, though, is that there's something more than the relevance needed. That's an overused expression. You use the term in your writings, validity. Religion must have validity. What, what makes a religion valid? No, if it is true, if it is uh, corresponds to real urgencies and questions and problems. Let me give you an, an example of what I mentioned to you before. Our entire civilization today revolves around one idea, interest or need. And we are taught the greatest thing in life is to satisfy one's need and interest. Actually, our way of living revolves around one principle, self-interest, self-interest. There's nothing else but self-interest. This is a fallacy, according to religion, and religion is right, valid. Because if everything is self-interest, then there is no love. Can you imagine humanity without love? If love is only self-interest, then love is a fake. Pretense. You're, you're telling me of the nature of man, not the nature of God, aren't you? Yes, the nature of God is that man should have ends, not only needs. The difference between an animal and a man is not the needs. Animal is needs, man is needs too. But man, in addition to needs, has to have ends, goals to strive for. The great task of religion is to teach men how to convert ends into needs. But what we do instead is to convert needs into ends. And needs are unreliable as a standard because some needs are authentic, some needs are false. Look at advertisement. Advertisement is trying to evoke in us needs which we are not in need of. Can you imagine a day will come and I will feel all of a sudden I couldn't live without color television. Television is not enough, it has to be a color television. I will sell 
I will give away the last penny I have because advertisement has convinced me that without color television, I couldn't survive, right? And a million other things. I have to have at least a summer home and a winter home because without a winter home and a summer home, I'm not a respectable citizen. It's the I read it in an advertisement. So it becomes a need. Religion says no. Man's distinction is to live by ends and for ends and goals, and not only satisfying needs. I am not against satisfaction of need. That's a necessary function of man. We have to satisfy our authentic needs. It's very important. We are against asceticism. We love life, but there are also ends and goals to be served. And this is the difference between animal and man. But ask an average man, what are your goals in life? He'll tell you. Life insurance, Cadillac, mm -hmm. and color television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You wrote a volume entitled, Who is Man? You dealt with some of these questions. Is there anything else you want to add to your definition? Oh, out of pain and anguish, how about that book? because I consider men to be left without friends in the world. Wherever I look, books I read, it's full of contempt for the nature of man, the naked ape, men is all violent, men is a sexual animal. America spent hundreds of millions of dollars to study the behavior of animals in order to understand men, because essentially men is an animal. Now I'm asking you, what a bigger insult is it to men to say that men are essentially a beast, except they have the ability to make tools, so to speak. My definition of an ape is ape is a human being without the ability to speak. Just as relative to say that man is a, an animal with the ability to speak. No, what I try to do in this book is to counter, to fight the ongoing dehumanization of men, which I see in every step, everywhere. Unless I feel that my life is accountable to him who is much greater than I am, I could not always control my mean leanings. I could not only be not only be ready for self-sacrifice, number one. Number two, my life would be poor. The deepest passion in any real human person is a craving for meaning of existence. What kind of meaning of existence can I find in the fact that I can make a few dollars? That I have a little success? Here I am and more tomorrow I'm gone. What's the meaning of everything? What's the meaning of our society? What's the meaning of our world? God is the meaning beyond absurdity. Wherever I go, I encounter absurdity. Consistent with the Jewish faith, you never write much, in, call, in fact, I don't recall you writing at all about uh, a life hereafter. Lots of religions are predicated on the idea of salvation rather than this earthly existence, you don't talk about that sort of thing. Why is that? Actually, I did write an essay on this problem, which I read at an international conference on death, etc., in Florence about three years ago. But frankly, I'll give you the real answer. We believe in an afterlife, but we have no information about it. <laughs> and therefore, you can't write about it? Can, can I write about it in terms of belief? Or expectation? Or hope? I did. I did. But you think that's less important than life on Earth? I think that's God's business, what to do with me after life. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my business, what to do with my life. I leave it to him. I am so busy trying to live a good life. No, don't always succeed. I have no time to avoid what God's going to do with me one time in the grave. Who knows what he wants to create me to be through the grave. And, and through all this, I find this uniqueness in your feelings of a collaborative, uh, a collaborative rather, effort between God and man. Yes. It's, it's a sharing. Yes. It's a, it's a powerful concept. I'm not sure I know how we can help God. You see, um, there was an old idea in Judaism found in the Bible, strongly developed by the rabbis, and very little known. And that is that God suffers when man suffers. There's a very famous text that says, even when a criminal is hanged, you know, the gallows, God cries. He says, Woe unto me. He is very unhappy with many. There is this great sympathy of God and part of man. God identifies himself with the misery of man. I can help him by reducing human suffering, human anguish, and human misery. We have just about a minute or so left. Uh, I should say at the start uh, of this hour, before we began this hour, Dr. Heschel indicated an interest in uh, directing a message at young people. And I don't know that I ever in the past hour gave you the chance I promised you that I would give you. I would say to young people uh, a number of things, and I have only one minute. I would say let them remember that there is a meaning beyond absurdity. Let them be sure that every little deed counts, that every word has power and that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world, in spite of all absurdities and all the frustration and disappointments. And above all, remember that the meaning of life is to build life as if it were a work of art. You're not a machine. When you are young, start working on this great work of art called your own existence. And the best way one of the ways of doing it, or two ways of doing it, is one, remember the importance of self-discipline. Second, study the great sources of wisdom. Don't read the bestsellers. <laughs> and third, remember that life is a celebration, or can be a celebration. There's much of entertainment in our life. And entertainment is destroying much of our initiative. It weakens our imagination. What's really important is life as celebration. In a very deep sense, I would say that the addiction the drug addiction from so many people suffer is due to the fact that man cannot live such a shallow life, stale. He needs exaltation, he needs moments of celebration. One of the most important things is to teach men how to celebrate life. You talked uh, earlier of slanders. May I give you an example of something which is not a slander, perhaps the most astute uh, comment on uh, your work? was made by Professor Marty of the University of Chicago, and he said Rabbi Heschel's work, unlike other philosophers, is directed not only at the mind, but at the heart and the will. I couldn't have said it so perceptively. Thank you very much for being with us. The Eternal Light, the NBC television religious program, has presented a conversation with the late Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel, taped shortly before his death. This program is dedicated to his memory. Dr. Heschel was professor of Jewish ethics and mysticism at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and a distinguished author, lecturer, philosopher, and activist.
is his legacy to us and can serve as an inspiration for all of us to follow. Dr. Heschel spoke with Carl Stern, NBC News United States Supreme Court correspondent. This special Eternal Life program was brought to you in association with the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and was a recorded production of the NBC Religious Programs Unit. Your announcer, Gene Hamilton. More with Heschel? Thank you. I'm still so behind the times. YouTube. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to watch some. But at least I had that, and you could get a sense of the man. Uh, so I, I, great. Thank you for reminding about YouTube. I'm reminding people about that all the time. Um, reactions, comments, questions. Now we know where to find him. That, that's right. And because he came, I mean, he came from a line of seven generations of Hasidic rabbis. Beyond that, I was reading another interview with him this morning. He, his family tree dates rabbis back to the 1500s. And so he was raised completely um, grounded and immersed in Judaism. And that, was, that became a strength for him, not a weakness, in embracing pluralism because he knew where he stood without having to uh, make it where someone else stands. I love that about it. And I want to emulate that. Uh, other, um, I, I like his accent. <laughs> That's just the way my grandparents talked. Uh, Gail? by how totally present he was. He was simply utterly there, moment by moment. And I was thinking how exhausting he would be to be around. <laughs> he was demanding. He was demanding, and he exhausted himself. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why he yeah. died of a heart attack. It's just a clear channel. That was all that was there. But he clearly understood. He felt that, what, that if God exists, that for him, God's reality was, the, was his own 
the demands on his own conscience. And he found the confirmation of those demands in the books of the prophets in the Bible. That, uh, um, and none of that, but for him, because he also understood paradox and the polarity of, of life, that none of that took away from enjoying being alive. Mm-hmm. Right? A, you, it's a wrestle, he said. It's a wrestle. Carol? I wrote down in the very beginning that he said his life was rich in moments of exultation. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to carry that around with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have this big smile. I was like, it's not going to go away. I feel so nourished. By, by him, by his presence, by what he said. Even the, even the masculine language was okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yes, Phoebe. Well, I just, it's really a wonderful privilege to, to sort of feel as though, even though it was a film, in the presence of somebody whose, whose whole commitment was to spiritual truth mm-hmm. and to speaking it. Especially today, where there are so many people who speak all sorts of things that don't are all on the surface, and this is true. Thank you, thank you. Part of his challenge to um, spiritual, what his challenge would be to what we now call the new age, would be where's the demand, right? For him, Judaism is a god who not only cares but also demands. And that's complicated, because who wants to feel guilty all the time, right? Uh, but that's not. But if that's how we feel, then we don't quite. We're not quite getting it. It's like uh, God is also compassion and justice. So, and anyway, it's all. But it you can't tie it up with a ribbon. I can't. It's it's more about the truth for me. Other reactions, thoughts, questions. Esther, I was interested. <clears throat> when he said that man has freedom, which I take to mean free will. Right. That, that um, it's not God's fault if man commits atrocities. Right. Because he has freedom. Right. And, well, to me, maybe that could be um, one of the things that I'll think about in terms of the Holocaust. Because I've always struggled with where was God? Not knowing my struggle. Right. Um, but this gives me a way to think about it in a different way. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. For a, for a, a, for a um, believer is not the right word, because for Heschel, clearly God was a felt reality and presence. And for someone of that nature, who then lost his mother, his sister to the Nazis, they were murdered by the Nazis, he got out by the skin of his teeth, none of it, he took none of it for granted. But none of that changed his inner experience because he didn't because of that understanding that God creates human beings and gives them free free will. We become God's problem then, as he said. Uh, But history is the record of humanity living up to, or not, its the the its its highest calling. Yes, it does solve the problem of evil in that regard, and it's actually how I. I've thought about it for a long, long time. Because otherwise, after the Holocaust, it's true. The God who's in charge, obviously, yeah. My experience can't back that up. Blaze? Um, I was really um, 
taken with and moved by what he said about his ability to rise above the circum his circumstances and see things from a, I don't know, a higher place. I don't know exactly mm -hmm. what Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And I think that that's so essential for all of us, because we all have circumstances, you know. None of Every us, single none person. Of us idiots, right? Nobody gets out of here alive, as someone told me, yeah. So... You know, some of us have more challenging circumstances than others, but we never know the moment at which we're going to have something that's challenging. And um, I really love that, the ability to rise above it and look at it from a different perspective, from a higher place, is, to me, really crucial in living a life of, I don't know, joy and beauty and understanding and compassion and whatever. Nicely put. Nicely put. Yes, beyond the soap opera and drama of our own lives, which are inevitable, uh, if that becomes the text of every, how we view things, well, it's a good show. You know, it's dramatic, it's got successes and problems, but uh, then we are, we're basically um, uh, uh, beholden or sort of in bondage to our day-to-day feelings, thoughts, experiences, isn't there something more? Uh, we humans seem to have that ability to rise above and reflect. And so he's speaking about that he was blessed with that in, his, um, in, in the way he was trained. And that, that's probably what he means when he talks about the advantage of a religious education, mm -hmm. right? Is the way, way he was taught to... Uh, consider the big questions, to consider the possibility that something was demanded of him, that his life was to be a life of service, that life was complicated and mysterious, but there was a meaning beyond the mystery. All the things that, that were his, his sort of foundation that allowed him to endure what... I mean, right, he's a Holocaust survivor. He got out in 1940, but his, the rest of his family did not. And... Well, that reminds me of Viktor Frankl's book, you know, uh, who in the camps uh, then developed a, a whole, whole therapeutic system about searching for meaning. That is a spiritual, religious endeavor. Yeah. Yes, Nora? Um, I found watching him tremendously moving, and one of the things I liked at the very beginning, he said, what keeps me alive is the ability to be surprised. Yes. And uh, he also um, showed, I think, a, a, a childlike sense of wonder at, at the world. You know, takes take nothing for granted. Everything is special in some way. Wonderful, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I um. Uh, I've used the word. I mean, I'm I'm blessed myself. My kids. I've said this before, but. You know, I say wow all the time when we're looking at things, and you know. Um, but it's a blessing that that seems to be my default. Um, and uh, uh, he called it radical amazement. That was one of his favorite terms. And another, maybe simpler term to describe it that's more accessible that I like and I've talked about before is curiosity. Mm. That if we can be curious, that is going to allow us to keep loving 
life and being alive. And mm -hmm. otherwise, we treat life as rote. And then two moments are the same. Oh, I've had this before. But if you're curious, then everything is in a wonderful, amazing surprise. Yeah. Yes. Boy, what an amazing com combination of qualities he had there. His, his childlike wonder and his passionate um, morality. Amazing. Anyone else? Yes, Avis. Um, I have two things. One, and I wasn't quite sure, he kept referring to art and going to the museum. Mm -hmm. And that, or two faces. There were no two faces the same. There was no two art the same, which made me keep thinking of the word create. Mm. And create, we hear that word so often in Torah. But is it art? Or were you creating your circumstances or your life? And that he combined this art and this duality, that there was a duality. Because every, it's just as they say, I'm looking at you and Esther's looking at you, but we see you differently. And that everything is different. So that means that if there are a billion people, or how many billion people there are now on this earth? A lot. There's so many experiences. <laughs> And that no one's having the same experience, and so that you have to keep creating your inner art and soul. Beautifully put. Mm -hmm. Beautifully put. Uh, one of the reasons I take such great um, inspiration from Heschel is that everything he says is totally grounded in Jewish thought. He's just expressing it in a in a contemporary with contemporary language, and. A, you know, one of the most famous statements in the Talmud is, one who saves a single life saves an entire world. Mm. And one who destroys a single life destroys an entire world, precisely because if we don't cultivate our innerness, in our inner life is a universe. And each, each person has the opportunity to do that, regardless of external circumstances. And then, you know, God willing, you take that inner life and use it as uh, 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 nourishment, you know, so that you can act in the world at the same time. Judaism is an amazing combination for me of the, the idea of, of cultivating an inner life and, of, uh, that, but, and, and where, that the action is what we're doing in terms of our outward behavior. But one without the other is... Uh, uh, um, what's the right word? Deadly. You know, it's like you, you can't be cloistered and, and just focus on your inner life and you can't just think that your righteous actions are going to lead you to a sense of uh, fulfillment. And I say that in the terms of a sense of your place in the universe. Yeah, it's so limiting. Yeah. yeah, and that's the paradox of being a human being is inwardness and out, outer behavior have to be in a constant uh, dance. Constant, constant attention to both. Patricia? Um, what's, one thing that struck me, too, but the whole idea of, and I've thought of this a lot and found it from your ideas, um, that, you know, prayer isn't just petitionary. You know, that there's exaltation right. and praise. And I've really noticed that working with kids because they take prayer in our, you know, our sort of society is about asking for 
Right. And, and they're smart enough to know that it isn't necessarily going to happen. Right. And then if it, you know, maybe when they're really little, they think so. But, but that's not all it's about. That's not what prayer really is, right? Right. Even when you're doing a healing prayer, that's not all that it is. That, you know, that's just, you know, the, some simple part of it. But that connected also with what he was talking about, um, about satisfaction, that that's not the point of life, that what's demanded of me is what life's about, not, you know, getting something, and it's connected, you know? So doesn't he, I mean, you know, most of us balk at the idea of commandments. Like, who commanded them? Why do we have to do all this stuff? You know, but... In the reframing that Heschel gives it, those commitments are our, de- our demand. Uh, and, oh. They're like a responsibility. A responsibility. Mm-hmm. Why are we here anyway? <laughs> right. Like, right. And to be a Jew means to feel a demand, as he will say. Mm-hmm. And that's not exclusive of other traditions' way of expressing it. That's just how, how, how he would say it. And you were also, oh, and, 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 and that phrase of his about prayer is one of his favorites. I read it in several places. Prayer may not save us, but it'll make us worthy, it could help make us worthy of being saved. Uh, so this act of inwardness, of, of praise, of gratitude, of wonder, of, and then from there also of expressing our deepest yearnings, all of that is what humanizes us for him, makes us, makes us human for him. That's what prayer is. It's not, it's not an extracurricular activity. It's so essential to him. Mm-hmm. Blaze? Um, another thing he said which really struck me was that um, we are not all guilty, but we're all responsible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really, that kind of blew me away because it really separates responsibility and guilt in a way that guilty is one thing, responsible is another thing, and I don't know, it's just a lot of food for thought in there, you know? Yes, yes, and he, and he uses as his proof text last week's Torah reading, which is, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Right, which is the, the, what the rabbis interpret to mean. There are many ways to read that verse. In fact, it even gets translated different ways. That's, uh, but um, the, way, the, the way the, main, uh, the mainstream of the rabbinic tradition teaches that is that there are no innocent bystanders. Right? If you see something, you say something. Right? If you see something wrong, you try to do something about it. And that's a demand. Because what comes right after that in Leviticus is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's the prelude to love your neighbor as yourself. Do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Do not hold a grudge against your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, uh, um, yeah, I just want to say that when he says that, he's coming right out of the heart of the rabbinic tradition. Yes. Oh, oh, sorry, Gail, you were the... You wanted to share yeah. something, and then Steve. I wanted to say something about more about petitionary prayer. Yes. Because I... I've come to think of it as it's not really asking for an intervention as much as it is pouring out one's heart as if to one's closest friend who is sort of just there offering compassion and <coughs> witnessing. And it's, it's in that vein to think about it, you know, to be fully 
open mm -hmm. in the presence of this loving, mm -hmm. caring witness. I mm -hmm. guess that's the best way. Mm -hmm. Which is really so. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Steve. But oh, Dave, you, uh, uh, Doug, you wanted to add to that. Well, I wanted to go with that a little bit to say he does it though in he a very it. secular way, doesn't he? He does it. He presents his ideas in a very here and now, grounded, very I think very secular kind of way. I mean, it's understandable without delving into too much um, religion. That's what made him the man for the moment. Oh, he's wonderful. Uh, because. Uh, when, when you read some of his uh, more scholarly religious works, he's completely immersed in Jewish scholarship. Right. And then he could translate that into contemporary idioms that really moved a lot of people. Right. Um, and uh, he, yes, he, he, yes, he was like that. Steve? I just wanted to clarify, as you were saying, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Right. But it, he's saying you may not be guilty, but you are responsible. But Therefore, he's also saying, I assume, I just want to clarify, that if you don't take that responsibility, you are guilty. Yes. Okay. Yes. You didn't cause that to happen, but you are responsible for trying to uh, aid the outcome. Yes, that's exactly how he sees it. It says, if you do not, in the Bible, it says, you will bear some guilt. Right? Do not stand idly by the blood of the neighbor. Or, you know, and it told us, well, that's the previous verse, where it says, and you must admonish your neighbor if you see them sinning, or you bear some of their sin, some of their guilt. So it's the same idea expressed there as well. Incredibly powerful passage. Blaise? But thinking on a, on, a, on a sort of broader scale, for example, the, the Vietnam War, okay? Yeah, I want to actually read something or, about that with you. Or racism, or you know, all of these ills that are, what, Am I guilty? Well, I didn't cause that war. I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, if not hire somebody, whatever. But the responsibility comes in sort of exercising our own activism, our own voting, our own powers of persuasion, our own, the things that we can do to try to change people's hearts. That can be a responsibility, even though we're not guilty about creating the circumstances That's that right. we want to change. That's right. So I was thinking too on that level, not on, you know, a specific. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well put. And. I think that since I've been a child, I have always thought that asking God for something was inappropriate. Uh huh. And that the only relationship I had, if I knew it was a relationship, was thanking. Yes. Being thankful. Yes. And I think that maybe for the few times that I did ask, it, it made me uncomfortable. Good. Yeah, well, you seem to be aligned with, you seem to be aligned with Rabbi Heschel on that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, personally, uh, I still don't ask for outcomes. Um, I ask for strength. I personally, I ask for I ask for the inner inner stuff that I need um, when I'm making you know, and that's a way of kind of I can summon help summon them. But that's what I do. I've never I've never been much of a practitioner of interventionary prayer, but plenty of people are, and there's some evidence that it works too. But anyway, uh, not in the absence. Uh, but the context for Heschel is that anyway, any time you pray, 
in a petitionary way, where you request something, it has to be growing out of this great foundation of gratitude and awe. Um, and if you don't mind, while I'm at it, you know, it wouldn't hurt, you know, but that's a different story than kind of, you know, the book of Job. It's like, takes that on. You know, Job is finally silenced by the voice in the world and saying, were you there when I made the earth? Do you think you really understand what divine justice is? Do you really think you know what's going on? So you're part of an age-old and important debate going back thousands of years. Who else is here? Uh, Patricia? I just wanted to say that um, there's like a very, it's a very, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's po it's a polarity. It's not about asking and saying, I want this, I'm the one who knows what's right, and I want it now. But right. on the other hand, there's an openness, and uh, you know, it's okay to ask your pour your heart out. Your best friend to help you. There's nothing, you know. There's nothing wrong. With pour that. your heart out. Right. It's like and, it's and, what's going to keep your heart accept, open. And to accept whatever help you get, and you know, there's nothing wrong with. I, I don't. So what it presumes, exactly. though, what it presumes to do that is that there is a relationship. Right. And um, for Heschel, he doesn't need to understand what God is or who God is. God is meaning beyond mystery, right? And that meaning beyond mystery has both, has reached through to us and made us. Um, and so um, if you don't, if, if you either by dint of trauma and hurt have closed yourself off to the possibility that the universe could possibly be interested in you, right, that it matters at all, or if you've been closed off by ideology that says that's impossible, then you wind up in a closed system. And what are you going to do? Because we're not closed systems, and this is my own take on it, is we are, we are in every possible way, open systems. Everything about us is ingesting the world and then putting something out in it. Everything about us, we're not. So why not also our thoughts and feelings? You know, why don't we relate to the universe that way, trusting that that's what part of what makes us human is to let our innerness out, let our yearnings be expressed. And the way it's expressed in religious language, as he says, is that the God of the Bible is a God who actually is interested, who has who is pathos, who, who cares, wants the world to be just, made us in God's image, saw that it's a problem giving us free will, and then keeps like rooting for us and cajoling us and scolding us and showing us the consequences of our negative behavior and all of that. All of that is a beautiful religious way of describing that we matter and that we're not alone. He wrote two, one of his books was Man is Not Alone. And uh, I hope I'm describing that in a useful way. Uh, Carol? Um, recently, I, I had something come into my life that I've been wanting, if, praying in many different ways for. Um, and, and, and all, but for a long time. And I'm 
talking, I'm talking, num you know, numbers of years here, and and it almost came to me not as an assignment too. It's not just something I I wanted, but something I I knew I was supposed to do. Only it hadn't manifested itself yet, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just showed up in one way. I don't know, you know, there's lots of ways, but but what I what I really got was how my time schedule and God's time schedule are not at all the same. And so it, it, prayers don't get answered immediately, right? But that doesn't mean I'm not being heard. That, that doesn't mean I'm not um, living up to my responsibilities in whatever ways I can. And that would be living with faith that uh, you're going to keep putting it out there, you're going to keep your yearning alive, you're not going to give in to despair, and then getting surprised <laughs> at some point by the way it unfolded, um, as opposed to giving up. So our job is to not give up, you could say in that regard, but we have no control over how or the when or the what. Um, yeah. Paradox, he used the word over and over. I'll only follow a teacher who likes paradoxes. <laughs> That's it. I have, um, a sh I picked a couple of short pieces today, and we have some time. Um, would you take one and pass it along? Okay, I'll, I'll walk around this way. Uh, this is a piece he wrote Thank you. also, you're so welcome. In 1972, I believe, shortly before he died, or the beginning of 73, called The Reasons for My Involvement in the Peace Movement. And I found it to be a very clear, and having heard him speak and share his favorite uh, sayings, this will be another way of accessing them. <clears throat> Sorry, it is like I was distracted. Carol was saying, and you know, one of the last things he was talking about in this film was ends and needs. Right. What you need in the end. Being patient. Patience. That's right. Those all those attributes. Thank you. I have often said, and it's one of my core beliefs about core principles about being a religious community as opposed to any with our folk is that here in a community with spiritual goals, the ends are the means and the means are the ends. In other words, how we treat each other every day is our goal and can only be achieved by doing it authentically all the time. So as opposed to having a goal of increasing productivity by 25% or membership, how are you going to do it? Well, let's see, we could have bingo night, you know, um, but that's not, our, that's not our goal. Our goal isn't to increase membership. Our goal is to treat everyone as a, as a being created in the image of God. So the only way to do that is to do that. And so then, rather than having a goal that's, disc there's no way that how we behave 
can be separated from what our goals are as a spiritual community. The ends don't justify the means. The ends are the means. You know, it's, a, it's something I've thought about a lot. So let's read this piece and break in any time. <clears throat> For many years I lived by the conviction that my destiny is to serve in the realm of privacy to be concerned with the ultimate issues and involved in attempting to clarify them in thought and in word. Loneliness was both a burden and a blessing, and above all indispensable for achieving a kind of stillness in which perplexities could be faced without fear. That's a deep paragraph right there. So he's a man who has spent his years of contemplation, reflection, solitude, a willing in order to produce the words that he produced that. And then in the process, it transformed him. This is what's so interesting. Three events changed my attitude. One was the countless onslaughts upon my inner life, depriving me of the ability to sustain inner stillness. Um, I don't know what he's referring to. Is he referring to the Holocaust, perhaps, or maybe all of life. The second event was the discovery that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. Even the high worth of reflection in the cultivation of inner truth cannot justify remaining calm in the face of cruelties that make the hope of effectiveness of pure intellectual endeavors seem grotesque. Isolationism is frequently an unconscious pretext for carelessness, whether among statesmen or among scholars. The most wicked men must be regarded as great teachers, for they often set forth precisely an example of that which is unqualifiedly evil. Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, and his implied negative response, must be regarded among the great fundamental evil maxims of the world. And again, that's what I've become convinced about too, that the rest of the book of Genesis and on through the Torah is actually an attempt to answer that question. The question, am I my brother's keeper? God doesn't answer it. God says, you're going to wander, you're, this is a curse, that you're going to be cursed for this. But God doesn't answer the question. It's up to Joseph, in my opinion, in the end of Genesis, when his brothers come and he cares for them, despite them having sold him into slavery 20 years earlier, is finally the answer to that question in Genesis. And then that, but that's, that's what a fascination for me. The third event that changed my attitude was my study of the prophets of ancient Israel a study on which I worked for several years until its publication in 1962. From them I learned the niggardliness of our moral incomprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures. It became quite clear to me that while our eyes are witness to the callousness and cruelty of man, our heart tries to obliterate the memories, to calm the nerves, and to silence our conscience. There is immense silent agony in the world, and the task of man is to be a voice for the plundered poor, 
to prevent the desecration of the soul and the violation of our dream of honesty. The more deeply immersed I became in the thinking of the prophets, the more powerfully it became clear to me that the lives of the prophets, what the lives of the prophets sought to convey, that morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. It also became clear to me that in regard to cruelties committed in the name of a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. I did not feel guilty as an individual American for the bloodshed in Vietnam, but I felt deeply responsible. Thou shalt not stand idly by the blood of thy neighbor. This is not a recommendation, but an imperative, a supreme commandment. And so I decided to change my mode of living and to become active in the cause of peace in Vietnam. And he was one of the founders of Clergy Concerned About Vietnam with Daniel Berrigan and Richard Newhouse. Very interesting. One of the three co-chairmen, I mean, when it was founded. Um, I want to say something about that line. Um, uh, morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. He is again echoing, either consciously or unconsciously, one of the most famous lines in the Mishnah, which is part of the daily prayer book, which is that these are the mitzvahs for which there is no limit. It's a famous passage. Um, and where you can, um, and then it uses an economic uh, metaphor where you can, um, the, the more you do it, the more principle you accumulate for interest in the world to come, as it were. Uh, and th- those mitzvahs are feeding the poor, leaving the corners of your field for the gleaning and for the hungry, um, making peace among your fellow human beings. There's a whole beautiful list of things you can't possibly do too much. No upper limit. So that's what I'm, I'm hearing, that, that piece of uh, Mishnah text, when he says that there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. The more carefully I studied the situation in Vietnam, the more obvious it became to me that the root problem there was not the conflict between North and South Vietnam, but the misery and corruption and despair of the population in South Vietnam, which to a large degree was brought about by colonial exploitation. The answer to that misery was not in killing the rebels, but in seeking a just solution to the economic and political issues of that land. To my dismay, I discovered that the people in this country who made decisions on waging the war in Vietnam thought almost exclusively in terms of generalizations. For example, communism was seen as the devil and the only source of evil in the world. These decision makers also had an exceedingly superficial knowledge of the economic, cultural, and psychological conditions of that country. Americans who went to Vietnam to take over the running of affairs there were not even able to speak the Vietnamese language and as a result could not communicate except through interpreters who are often biased, self-seeking, and even corrupt. Devoid of understanding, burdened with prejudice and pride, mighty America sank into the quagmire of this most obscure and complex conflict. When I concluded in 1965 that waging war in Vietnam was an evil act, I was also convinced that immediate and complete withdrawal from Vietnam would be the wisest act. Realizing the hopelessness that such a proposal would ever be accepted by the then current administration, I formulated my thought by saying, true, 
It is very difficult to withdraw from Vietnam today, but it will be even more difficult to withdraw from Vietnam tomorrow. Above all, it was a war that couldn't be morally justified. For war, under all circumstances, is a supreme atrocity and is justified only when there is a necessity to defend one's own survival. It is politically illogical, I thought, to assume that communism in South Vietnam would be a greater threat to the security of the United States than communism in Hungary or Czechoslovakia. As much as I abhor many of the principles of communism, I also abhor fascism and the use of violence in suppressing those who fight against oppression by greedy or corrupt overlords. In addition, the war in Vietnam by its very nature was a war that could not be waged according to the international law to which America is committed, which protects civilians from being killed by military forces. I very early discovered that large numbers of innocent civilians were being killed by the indiscriminate bombing and shooting of our own military forces, that numerous war crimes were being committed, that the very fabric of Vietnamese society was being destroyed, traditions desecrated, and honored ways of living defiled. Such discoveries revealed the war as being exceedingly unjust. As a result, my concern to stop the war became a central religious concern. Although Jewish tradition enjoins our people to obey scrupulously the decrees issued by the government of the land, uh, that is a key feature of rabbinic law, that in the lands of diaspora, we should obey the laws of, the la of whatever, whatever land we're living in. Um, and uh, that's why, just as an aside, when Jesus says, uh, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and unto God's that which is God's, that's the Jewish thinking of the first century. Right? Pay your taxes. Uh, but, although my Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition enjoins our people to obey scrupulously the decrees issued by the government of the land, whenever a decree is unambiguously immoral, one nevertheless has a duty to disobey it. When President Johnson expressed to veterans his consternation at the fact that so many citizens protested against his decisions in Vietnam, in spite of his authority as president, and the vast amount of information at his disposal, I responded at the request of John Cogley of the New York Times, that when the Lord was considering destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham did not hesitate to challenge the Lord's judgment and to carry on an argument with him whether his decision was just. Abraham said, can it be that the judge of the universe would fail to act justly? For all the majesty of the office of the President of the United States, he cannot claim greater majesty than God himself. Uh, well, we know what he'd be doing, what Hesh would be doing. Anyone want to so bring you back to the Vietnam War? Some of us? Actually, it brings me back to what happened in the White House with, the, uh, with all of those uh, people that Trump appointed to be in charge of Secretary of State or, yes. or, or the National Security Council are apologizing for the president's um, um, actions where he released confidential yes. reports. So that line, find it. that line, it became quite clear to me that while our eyes are witness, 
to the callousness and cruelty of man, our heart tries to obliterate the memories, to calm the nerves, to silence our conscience. Right. I think this is what has happened. So one of the reasons I brought this in is, remember, I, I called this class, uh, every class I plan here, I'm doing it for myself. And I'm glad you want to look, learn this stuff too. Because I felt like at this juncture, this moment in our, in our um, uh, American story, uh, Heschel's, I need to remember Heschel. I need to listen to him and study him and say, well, what a, is he, he's called, considered, he, he considered these to be central religious concerns. You heard he saw on the tape. Based on those folks who think that clergy shouldn't be speaking up about social and political issues, uh, then God isn't a very good, uh, uh, God must not be a very good um, religious leader either, because God talks about it all the time, which is his way of saying that when Isaiah says, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. I mean, what, what are we talking about? You know, he was speaking to his society at that time. So what does it mean for us to be people of conscience, people of religious commitment? When do we speak up and how do we speak up? That's a, that's a question I need to explore. Ron? Yeah, I mean, the, the parallel here is to Martin Luther King's speech at the Riverside Church yes. in 67. Seven. Seven, the year before um, he died. That was prophecy. It was, that Without was right question, that was prophecy. Um, and, it, and it's the same thing. He That's his speech where he said, I have to talk about the war in Vietnam. I can't just talk about uh, issues of, of racism. And for, for you know five years, he'd been an ally of President Johnson um, in, in social equality. And this was a major betrayal, according to Johnson, that he spoke out against the war. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, and, and this is essentially the same thing. You know, my concern to stop the war became a central religious concern. Um, and that this is, this is pretty much what... That's right. And we know, again, that um, Heschel and King were close colleagues and friends. Um, and... Uh, that they, I, one of the papers that I have um, in my file by Susanna Heschel, his daughter, who edited this uh, book of essays of his, um, is uh, a description of his and King's relationship, which I found to be really inspiring, uh, how they encouraged and read each other and talked about each other and introduced each other at different events. And, they really were influences upon each other. So, yeah, no one was functioning in a vacuum there. Yeah. Yeah. Jerome. In Paul Kremlin's column yesterday, he echoed some of these thoughts. <clears throat> he said Trump and his party are willing to put up with anything. His, his foolishness, destroying the world, denying women's rights, as long as their end goal of cutting taxes for the rich yeah. Is attained. Mm -hmm. right. That may be a slight oversimplification, but in, in an essence, it's the truth because yes. that's what they want. Every bill that you see, the health care bill, the main purpose of the health care bill is to cut taxes on the rich. Right. The Trump care bill. So now, should we be talking about this in synagogue? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. uh, that's, that's, the, that's the edge we're riding right yeah. now. 
And that's why I'm bringing, I'm not saying no, I'm not, I just, and then, and I would say that the challenge, if we consider it a religious concern, is then how we approach with what qualities in ourself do we, if we become um, uh, reactive and hateful, which I certainly feel like doing, you know, then that might be temporarily effective in mobilizing in mobilizing in resistance, right? But I don't think that's what Heschel's talking about. Um, the, so it's so yes, let's talk about it. But if it becomes an adrenaline rush that gets us all charged up, what is the alternative of being committed and determined and not and and know that there's a demand on us right now without uh, um, without uh, losing our bearings and uh, I don't mean to say that to parse words and keep us from doing things but I would say that the paradox the polarity is exaltation moments of exaltation where uh, just like when we look at, our, as I was saying before, when we look at our own lives, and uh, if we're totally tied up just in our own soap opera, and every up is, and all of our positive reactions are due to positive outcomes that we can see, and all of our negative reactions are due to negative things that happen to us, and we're riding that, it's a great TV show, right? But there's something more that makes it a religious concern, which is that ability to look at it from another perspective and know that the prophets were saying this 3,000 years ago and that this is the human challenge, something along those lines. But yeah, then let's talk. Yeah, Gail? Yeah. Did, did I see your hand before? Probably. Oh. I just wanted to say that to me the question that Heschel raises so, so seriously is what do we do? If we're all responsible, what do I as one citizen What's my obligation? What's the demand on me? Mm, How mm, much mm. of my life do I give away or up to pursue justice and compassion in the larger world? Because it's not about my personal life here. He's talking about my political life. But he's also talking about your personal life because yeah. he has just said that he had to leave the ivory tower because he felt something... But I'm saying it's the impingement on what is my personal life That's right, right. in order to play a more political... Role. That's right. How far? Uh, what's being asked of us, actually? What's being asked of each of us? And he also indicated at the very beginning, he said, my upbringing gave me was good in one way and not good in another way. It wasn't good at uh, um, sports. sports, but he used a different word first, pleasure. Like before that, he said, I'm not a sporty type, he said. Uh, but, but what he was talking about was the pursuit of pleasure um, as not a negative, right? Uh, and um, he worked himself to death. I mean, people told him he had to slow down. He, he had a heart attack when he was about 62, and serious heart attack, and then he died when he was 65. And he just... He was only 65. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you. Wow, that he was I know. He was 65. So it's crazy. He looks like my grandfather when he was in his <laughs> 80s. He does. Um, but that was part of what he was... Yes, exactly. Right. So, uh, yes. Yes. 
you know, something that's very close and personal for me right now is that my daughter has become an activist. And just for an example, this weekend she has an opportunity to go to the National Conference of March On. And she has her duties and her obligations and her responsibilities and her desires as a mother. So there's this... Um, how old is Tavi now? Tavi's 11, 11. To be 11, right. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this stuff going on this weekend for him. And can she separate herself from him and go to this conference? And I mean, I've seen it. She was doing this whole march over the Hudson for the climate change. And she was like totally involved in that, really not really. And, um, you know, so she's grappling with this, you know, kind of polarization, although it isn't. So how does she, how is she, you know, an involved and concerned and loving and compassionate and parent at the same time as she is very, very much in her activism? And what you were saying about, you know, how do we come to what it is we do? And do we come like this or do we come? And I had suggested to her that she start, um, I don't know, a blog or something or do something and I suggested um, inner work for activists as a sort of a theme mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed by activists of all kinds and so when you were talking about you know does this have a place in the synagogue absolutely if we come to it from doing the inner work that we need to the spiritual work that we need to do to be effective in our own political lives and our own personal lives, and that's where they come together. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you raise a really important subject and topic because the political life has sort of been kept out of here to a certain degree, at least you know on Shabbat and everything. Well, I, I keep it out on Shabbat on on purpose, right. and no, I was gonna I, I want to explain that. But there is um, inner work to be done on Shabbat that is relevant to what we do in the world and the political and our own political lives. So that's right. So yeah. inner work for activists. Otherwise known in Jewish terms as Shabbat. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. That's it. Inner work for activists is, depending on how observant you are, praying every morning, uh, before you start your day, or if you have a different practice for remembering the big picture, for priming yourself not to be reactive in the course of your day, or you may have your own ways of doing it, but the Jewish framework that was set up was prayer three times a day, I don't succeed at that, uh, um, study, which we're doing, this is Torah study, this is us studying a great rabbi so that we can um, uh, uh, do our inner work Right, so we can get ourselves aligned with our own sense of purpose. Uh, and then, of course, the Sabbath. Um, you know, we were talking last week in his piece about prayer, that most of us in other synagogues, in most other synagogues, did not experience the Sabbath as an opportunity to restore our inner um, um, landscape, right? To kind of remember and water it. So that the plant, so it could be verdant and and life giving, um, but the group of us who were here on Saturday morning, 
We got to cry, we got to sing, we got to hope, we got to pray. It helped me. So um, there is a framework, and uh, every tradition has it, every spiritual tradition has their framework, and um, hopefully we can be a community that also... I do not talk about politics on Shabbat, uh, except on rare occasions when when it feels absolutely imperative, uh, because... Um, there are six other days of the week for that. I have a feeling the reason that happens is because it's the only time sort of um, uh, um, historically when I have everyone's, the the clergyman has everyone's attention. (laughs) You know, um, uh, but um, uh, now now there's other ways to communicate beyond mimeograph bulletins, so. But what I wonder is, is do I, I have to ask myself, do I look at that in relation to what I do politically? I, ah. don't, I don't know if I make, if I make that particular connection, and oh, I'm that's wondering an if other people make that connection, mm-hmm. that this is the inner work for not only how do we treat all the people that we come in contact with every day, but what is our, how is our, how are we responsible for what's happening in the rest of the world? And I don't know whether I have made that particular connection, and I'm wondering Uh whether other people connected Mm -hmm. in that particular way. Yes, it's inner work. And Mm -hmm. how is that connected to Mm -hmm. my, I connect it really easily to my personal life. It makes me think, thank you, that's so clear. It makes me think about Heschel. for whom he obviously had a precious and uh, relationship with exaltation and with prayer and with God and you know obviously the, the you can feel it coming out of him, uh, but for him it because the the God as he understands it is the God who gave voice to the prophets who said. God, who said, what kind of worship is this? You know, the prophets say this over and over. You call this worship when you're crushing the poor under your heel? You know, you come to me and fast this day, says, that's the image, you come to me and fast this day, says Isaiah, when you're grinding the workers under you? You call this a fast? So there's no separation for uh, a Heschel who has internalized the whole of it as um what what God demands, demands of us. And this is where, for him, bibl- the biblical faith, what Judaism has to contribute to the world, is that there is, in fact, no separation between the God that comforts us and the God that demands of us. I'm, I'm just thinking about his words uh, out loud. And if I had that inner clarity, too, that the, which I do to a certain extent, um, so it's not like it's absent, and I know it's not absent for you too, then God's hugging me on Shabbos like, uh, like my mom and giving me a French toast so that I can go back out there and play, play shortstop the next day. You know what I mean? Except that the game is not just a sport. It's the game of making the world a more just and compassionate place. And so it's all of a piece in that way. Uh, if we can... If, 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 if we can um, immerse ourselves in Judaism in that way. 
Steve? I know he was a JTS, but did he identify still as a Hasid no. with the Hasidic community? No, he did not identify. He identified passionately with his lineage. But, um, and in many of his talks, he's quoting Hasidic stories all the time, and in fact saying, my ancestor, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, my ancestor, this guy, he's descended from every big shot in the Hasidic lineage. It's really... And, and he takes, he's not name-dropping, he's saying, this is who I am. But did he consider himself conservative? Absolutely not. Oh, no, he, he wasn't conservative. No. He didn't consider himself conservative. No, he considered it, he was sort of sui generis. He considered himself... Uh, um, he was straddling worlds. He was a refugee from the Holocaust. He was someone who had escaped his Hasidic world for the PhD in Berlin. He was who he was. But when he's talking, some of the things he's talking about here in this tape are a direct critique of the Jewish Theological Seminary. I, I, if I take a notes, I could point out where it was. But it became a place where he could do his work, at, at, and uh, he appreciated it very much. But he was not a conservative Jew. Because the reason I ask is, you know, how he would look at the right-wing Hasidic community today. I mean, how they move politically. Well, I'm sure he would have a nuanced critique, um, actually. Uh, no, well, sure, you know. I would assume he'd have a nuanced critique given given what I've heard and read, because on the one hand, I think he treasured the, um, the way the Hasidic world keeps the teachings of Hasidism alive. On the other hand, he was much more a Buberian. You know, Buber was the one who introduced Hasidism to the Western world and to the secular world with his tales of the Hasidim and his other books. Uh, but he was using Hasidism as a foundation for a more universalist uh, um, uh, teaching. So I'm sure he'd be harshly critical of it. Um, I can only imagine. Isn't it the, I'm, I just want to make sure I understand that. So there's Hasidism that came up, it was joyful, and, and then after the Holocaust, there's the Hasids who live in the place and where they're at. No, it's too simplistic. No, uh, my reading of my 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 reading of history, and this is how I've been trained. So it could, you know, take take every, take it as a as a maybe a good description, but it makes sense to me. Is that Hasidism was a revival, spiritual revival movement, in the mid 18th century, in Poland, and the Jewish Pale of Settlement. It was an internal spiritual revival movement. And it upended a lot of the uh, yeshiva hierarchy because it was saying, no, it was a revival movement. It's like, no, God's right here. Let's sell, you know, it was very much. Um, by the early 19th century, as modernity was starting to fracture and fragment the, the pre-modern Jewish communities. Hasidism started putting up walls. It was then, in the early 19th century. Hasidism even made common cause with their arch enemies, the ultra-Orthodox Misnagdim, 
who were opponents of Hasidim, the Litvaks, the Lithuanians, you know, uh, they made common cause uh, in trying to oppose the inroads of modernity into Jewish life because it was literally fragmenting Jewish life. Right? The reform movement was a different response to that, to try to adapt to the new modern life. So it wasn't because of the Holocaust. It was because of modernity. And uh, that, uh, that hardening of the arteries started then and basically continued all the way up to the present day. Uh, and um, the walls get higher and higher. Uh, so it wasn't the Holocaust. So it's, it, to me, again, in an, in an oversimplification, it follows the trajectory of most revival movements. They have this incredible uh, effect of bringing new spiritual vitality, and then as they institutionalize, they lose it, and what's always needed is another revival movement. Uh, you know, so, so I study Hasidism, but I study, it, I study it for the spiritual revival part back then and all the way up into the early... No, this, it can, that spiritual vitality continues right through the 20th century, but it becomes more and more insulated and cut off from the world. So I study Hasidic wisdom, but I don't try to emulate Hasidic um, isolationism at this point. Um, and he was a typical reason why, Hasids, why Hasidic sects felt the need to try to put the walls up. He was, he was an Ilui, he was a prodigy who was being groomed to be the next leader of his Hasidic sect. He was a descendant on both sides of an arranged marriage of two great Hasidic lineages. And he up and left and went to Berlin and got a PhD in Weimar, Germany. Right? How do you keep the walls up? So, uh, but then there are these beautiful folks like Heschel who managed to br bridge, straddle those worlds so that we have, we can, you know, if I teach you a Hasidic text, if those who've done that with me, you know how much unpacking I have to do to try to, get, I, I've studied it, I care about it, it's, I love it, and I have to unpack it because it's in such unfamiliar metaphors and language. And here's, but here's a, a Heschel who can translate it for us, and so he's more accessible to us, but he is in the lineage of Hasidic Judaism and what moves his heart, the idea that we're God's partners, the idea that there's divine sparks hidden in everything. That all, the essences of Hasidic thought are just beautiful. Um, and, uh, but that's also, you know when a movement got frozen in time by the way they dress. Right? They dress as 19th century, 18th century Polish nobility. That's what, that's the, that's what the knickers are and the fur hats, and that's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's like the Amish sort of also deciding when yeah. we're saying no to the rest of, uh, you know. And then what happens is that changes work their way in, but not acknowledged. Yeah, that's, that's plenty of it, yeah. We <sighs> <laughs> should all take a breath. <laughs> yeah, thank you for saying that. Sure, take a breath. <laughs> Thank you. So we have one more week for this class next week. In June, 
I'm going to pause in teaching because I'm working on some writing projects that I want to finish up. So uh, classes will resume after I get to finish that. I've been waiting, waiting many months to try to clear out, clear my deck a little. Um, this tomorrow evening. We have a speaker. Is, did you have the flyer over there? Did someone bring it in? Yeah, uh, Stefan Gerson wrote a book called Disaster Falls. Stefan is a member of the um, synagogue, he and his wife Allison. And t 10 years ago, I thought it was less, and then I realized it was 10 years ago. Nine, nine, nine years ago. Their son Owen drowned in a, in a, dra a rafting accident in the Green River. Nine years ago. Um, Stefan is a writer, and he decided, he processed by writing and writing and writing, and this past uh, recent few months ago came out with this book, and I hadn't read it. I didn't want to read it, you know, but I'm going to be m moderating the discussion with him on Wednesday night, and so I finally got the book yesterday, and I, I read, I, I, just, I just devoured it. He's an astonishing writer and a beautiful soul and honest, just honest, honest, honest. So he wants to talk, he's going to read, from, read some excerpts, then we're going to talk about losing children, losing lover, loved ones, losing uh, about how you go on, about, uh, and he's very open and interested in having this conversation, or he wouldn't have written the book, obviously, but he told me he was particularly pleased to get to do it here because... You know, the funeral was here, and we went, we t he's part of our community. He's a professor at NYU, uh, French literature and culture, and uh, really a brilliant guy. So that's tomorrow night at 7, if you want to come. I wanted to say that. Now that I've read the book, I feel like, oh, so glad I picked this up. It's, it invaded my dreams last night, but I'm still glad I'm reading it. Um, also on Saturday night, we have another speaker, Dr. Reza Mansour, who is the head of the Islamic um, Society of Greater Hartford and a member of the Interfaith Commission there. And he's a cardiologist, and he wrote a memoir called Stigmatized, uh, Being a Muslim in America After 9-11. And uh, he and his wife is also, I forget his wife's name, they're going to come and they're both going to be here. And, talk, and that's also Saturday night at 7, so I'm, I'm excited about both of those things, plus everything else that happens here. Well, thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.